This is exactly right. On the 12th season of Tenfold More Wicked, we investigate a series of compelling mysteries from the city of Fall River, Massachusetts, where problems started generations before Lizzie Borden's murders made her a household name. Join me as we cover the misfortunes that have befallen this infamous town for more than 150 years, including the Great Fire of 1843. Season 12 is out now on Exactly Right. New episodes on Mondays. Follow Tenfold More Wicked on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When I really started saying to myself out loud, wow, this is so hard. I am really struggling right now. I love this child so much and it is breaking my heart that this child is suffering, but I know that this child will come through it and she or he's going to have to experience this and I'm going to have to watch that person experience this and this is going to be really, really hard. But this is part of the process. This is part of parenting. This is part of making a healthy, independent being. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to seek the same in our own lives while striving to be the best versions of ourselves each day. Because no matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. So everyone, I'm so excited for this show today. This show is Surviving Anxiety with the Anxiety Sisters. And I am pleased to introduce you to the Anxiety Sisters. They are Abby Greenberg and Maggie Sarachek. And they're also, uh, they go by, as we will talk about, abs and mags, because they are so cool and so personable. Um, They not only have walked the walk, they've huddled, heaved, hurled, sweated, palpitated, and hyperventilated their way through life, which we are going to learn about. Once they figured out how to manage their own anxiety, they began to share what they learned on their very popular podcast, The Spin Cycle, and a growing online community of more than 200,000 like-minded sufferers from 200-plus countries. Get that. 200-plus countries that Everyday Health selected as one of the top 10 anxiety blogs to follow for a stress-free life. And we are also talking about their brand new book, which I am holding right here. It's a beautiful book called The Anxiety Sister Survival Guide, How You Can Become More Hopeful, Connected, and Happy which we all want to do. Uh, Abby and Maggie, welcome to the show today. Well, thank you, Dr. Dan. We're so excited to be here. Yes, thanks. And, um, well, so excited. I mean, to hold your book, to read your book, and I just learned, everyone, that they actually haven't held their book yet. It's that (laughs) new, and somehow people like me get a version to review it before they get to hold it. And so it's... it's, um, We're going to talk all about it and what's in it. And before, you know, we have to start the beginning... Um, and that beginning is who you guys, you know, your paths, which you write about in your book, like who you are and how you came together. We've each been an anxiety sister since we're little kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, we didn't know that what we were experiencing when we were little kids was anxiety. It came out in the forms of stomach aches and homesickness and separation anxiety and all kinds of other things that we were too young to understand. So, um, but we both feel that we've always had anxiety, but we didn't actually meet each other until college in the late eighties where we sort of recognized each other's panicked faces as kindred souls. And that's really where, um, our friendship began, our sisterhood began and our, our journey to learn to how to manage our anxiety and live well with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it became pretty clear we weren't going to ever be anxiety free. So that was, yeah. And that's just key. Like live well with it. Um, mm-hmm. Live mm-hmm. well with anxiety. It's really important for everyone to hear that who does suffer um, in, in, in any way, mild, moderate, or severe. It's like how to live well with this thing called anxiety. Yes. Right. 
So we we spent a lot of years. You know, Malcolm Gladwell says it takes ten thousand years to become an expert. Well, we've tripled that. <laughs> we spent a lot of hours, a lot of decades. Professionals, yeah. Yes. We have the patent yeah. on anxiety. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we really, um, we did. We walked the walk and huddled and heaved and all those things uh, because we are coming at this from the sufferer's perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, we first and foremost consider ourselves anxiety sisters as opposed to professionals in the field, which we are as well. Right. But right. That, that came out of our desire to heal ourselves and learn to thrive with anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so Mags and I became a sorority of two <laughs> at, in college. Which has grown. Yes, yes. yes. We, we are now to up to over 200,000. Um, and it's really the community aspect is so important to us because really when we started with our anxiety, that's all we had was each other. Mm-hmm. Back in mm-hmm. the 1980s, the conversation was not as robust as it even is today. And we feel it still needs a lot of improvement, but it's so much better than it was when we Mm -hmm. were in college. I mean, people really didn't talk about anxiety or depression. We didn't have places like active minds and, Mm -hmm. and um, podcasts that address anxiety for kids and, and teenagers and adults. It just wasn't in the public conversation. So we're really grateful for how far it's come. But for us, we were each other's conversation. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. Gradually, over a period of, you know, 20 years, we figured it all out. But it took that long. And we figured, you know, we should write a book so we can save some people some time. Mags, what do you remember when you guys first started to talk about this, going back just a few years? Oh, talk about and talk about anxiety or anxiety systems? Yeah, or? Ma- yeah that connection that you guys made I, through I think, anxiety. I think what I remember most is... Um, we both felt so much blame and so much shame around mm-hmm. having um, these issues. And it's not so much that we were like, oh, I'm anxious and I'm ashamed of that, or I have anxiety disorder and I'm ashamed of it. It's sort of how it plays out in in one's life. So it's the idea that there are places you can't get to. Mm-hmm. You know, like I I remember being on the on the way to a friend's wedding and it was like three hours away. And I was like, oh, I think I'm having, I think I have a stomach flu. Well, finally, my anxiety told me to make a U-turn. And on the way home, my stomach flu went away. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And yeah. there were, there were, you and know. so did your and, friendship. Sort of my <laughs> friendship. But there were, there were jobs that we didn't go for or we didn't take or opportunities and and so many relationships that suffered. And it's not so much they suffered because we said, hey, I have anxiety. It They suffer because of all of the things that happen when you're really coping with mm-hmm. a, we call it a brain illness. You know, all the things mm-hmm. that happen in your daily lives that you can't quite do. Um, and so I remember that feeling of being being alone and being really isolated. And I think that's why the community is so important to us. You know, that's so much. We we created this community and this book that we wanted and needed and still want and need. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Where we talk about, yeah, what it, what does it actually feel like to have anxiety? Not in the, um, yes, we all know you get a racing, some people get racing hearts, but you know, we talk, we go down into the nitty gritty, you know, that you start to burp a lot and fart a lot sometimes that, you know, things actually happen that are scary and not very fun and sometimes embarrassing. And you guys are so real about it. Um, the other thing that I, 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 I wanted to add and left out in your bios, and this is just for everyone to, it makes everyone feel so, um, just so normal, you know, that you each live with your anxious husbands and your anxious kids, right? And, um, and how these things run in families, but just, just that you're willing to put that out there. Um, I just know how comforting it is for me to hear as someone who knows worry and anxiety very well. Um, and knowing that when I started to talk about that with clients or at my talks, you know, it's counter to our training to talk about ourselves in a way when it's supposed to be focused on the client and we're supposed to, you know, have all the answers. And it turns out it's actually such a 
helpful piece of information to help the people you're consulting with, you're working with, you're talking to, to know like, yeah, I'm human too. I totally get this. Um, and, and, and I guess where I'm going with this, mm-hmm. the long way here is until you know what anxiety is and those, all of those different body feelings and sensations and thoughts, you don't know you're actually anxious. You just think it's just you and, and that there's something really wrong with you. Yeah, the most common comment that we get on our Facebook page, the most common quotes that we get in our nightly emails is always, wow, I didn't know that was a thing. I thought it was just me. Or I can't believe mm-hmm. that this is anxiety, but now it makes sense. I had no idea. Yeah, I, well, I think that's that's the whole thing about anxiety is that, you know, and there are many different types of anxiety, but um, particularly with panic, you know, we people end up in the emergency room more than once. Sometimes um, we end up going from doctor to doctor. Abby and I both say we ended up going to the. We had the decade of is. We went to the mm-hmm. therapist, the psychiatrist, the neurologist, the mm-hmm. the cardiologist. <laughs> any any kind of the past life regressionists at times. Any yes. ca- yeah. anyone who we thought could help us because it's very hard to believe what anxiety does to, to our bodies. You know, it's, it's very hard to believe that we get a rash. It's anxiety. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. feel like we have the stomach flu. It's anxiety. We're, our hands are shaking or they're numb. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's very hard to believe all the things it can do for, to us and um, to our bodies. So, you know, a lot of times people do say to us, Oh my God, that's it. That it's anxiety. That's why I have this. And and no one can figure out what, what's going on with me. Yeah. And it seems, um, in my experience as well, doing this work, just helping people understand what it is, what it looks like, where it comes from. I always say that's like 50% of it right there just to like have, right. Like, Oh, this is what it is. And then you can start getting to work about like, what do you, you know, what do you do with it? What do you do about it? We really consider our mission to normalize the mm-hmm. experience of anxiety. We want it. We want people to say, "Oh, it's okay if I feel that way. It's it's anxiety. I know that. I know about that now." In other words, we want it to be. I mean, we, we want it. We want the humanity of it to yes. be front and center because yes. every human being has experienced anxiety at some point. Mm-hmm. Right now, there's mm-hmm. some of us who are lucky enough to have um, have it interfere with our lives, and then it becomes a disorder. Mm-hmm. But the point is that the that the feeling of anxiety, that that sensation and that emotion, is an is an entirely human thing. So Mags and I consider it our job to normalize it because what we can name, we can tame. You know what we yes. can what yes. we can talk about, and especially with children. Mm-hmm. You know, children with anxiety, it's a tricky one because. Kids don't have the vocabulary to know what's happening to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Max and I really try to help people understand ways that they can help their kids understand that, you know, that, that their tummy ache may be that they might be feeling anxious about going to school today. In other words, you know, way, the ways to talk to children depending on their age. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what we're about is, is naming yeah. it, talking about what it is, telling the truth, real world stuff. And so let's, 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 let's name it and let's talk about you guys spend uh, a fair amount of time in a very user-friendly way, like your whole book is user-friendly, about describing the different types of anxieties. And I got the sense um, where, le- where we're similar is there's this um, conflictual relationship with labels and diagnoses, mm-hmm. right? So let's talk about the utility of it and also like how it doesn't define us or pathologize us. What's that? What's that balance? Right. Well, I'm I'm also a social worker. Um, I also have a master's degree in social work, and um, so I've always struggled with labels in the sense that um, they they do pathologize. Um, mm-hmm. They they do pathologize um, some things. Some things and. They do, um, they are often based on this like sort of dominant culture's idea of what's right and wrong, you know, mm-hmm. and, and we give an example in the book of um, someone from the Haitian community, a doctor, you know, talking to us about this. And, and I worked with a very international group of students when I was a counselor in a high school. And, you know, so 
she gave us the example of someone saying, well, you know, I, I, I'm nervous because this woman put a spell on someone I know and they died. Mm. And, you know, that's the type of thing that's very easy to pathologize. Right. If you don't understand a culture. And so um, labels do that. And they, they also sort of separate us in a lot of ways. They separate the pieces of our personality, like, mm-hmm. you know, um, we're all a lot of different things at different times. Right. So we, we definitely struggle with labels. And the thing is, is that in part, they're helpful to get the treatment you need, right. <laughs> you know, to, for insurance, right. but in part, they're also helpful to, zero in on what is the thing that is most disrupting your life right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, um, like Abby, you know, gives an example that she, she struggles with OCD and, you know, she needed that diagnosis to, to be able to get the right treatment. It mm-hmm. wasn't just an anxiety or depression treatment. She needed the OCD treatment. It took a while to get that diagnosis. But then treatment could come from that. Yes. So at its best, yes. labels help us get treatment that we need. And at its worst, as you you know, they pathologize us, make us feel less than, and make us feel that yes. there's something wrong with us. And you guys spend a lot of time trying to. It's like this is part of being human. And some of us, and and not only some of us, but the the statistics that you guys quote, like about one third of people will experience an anxiety disorder, one out of three in their lifetime, at least one, let alone several or continual. And, th- and that women are twice as likely to uh, be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder as men, which I, I didn't think was that high. That's really high. Yeah. Well, there's, uh, there's a couple of philosophies or a couple of ideas being floated around in the scientific community as to why, you know, we, we quote the cultural reasons why. But um, there, there is uh, this thought out there that um, sort of estrogen has some kind of effect on serotonin, and that may be why. I mean, in terms of science, that may be one of the reasons. But also culturally, I think women are put in a position of carrying a lot more blame and shame, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we we really believe that that's the root of the problem. You know, when we talk about living anxiously happy, what we mean is you can live happily with anxiety, but you can't with blame and shame. So we're all about getting rid of the blame and the shame. And and that's one of our problems with labels is that they can often carry with them some blame and shame. Well, and then you're also working your way towards part of your secret sauce, right? Yes. So let's talk about the secret sauce of living happily with anxiety? Well, the first ingredient is always acceptance. You know, that, that um, it's a journey to accept that what you, that what it was a journey for us to accept that what we were feeling was anxiety. And I think it's a journey for a lot of people um, to know this is anxiety. And, and I find it so helpful for myself to be able to sort of, say, oh, this is what my brain is doing. It's actually doing this thing from evolution and it's trying to protect me, right? It's trying to stop. It was trying to stop me from being eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. And it's kind of, so it's putting me into fight or flight, but it's doing it in the grocery store. (laughs) Um, It's doing it in places where I don't feel um, in immediate danger but my brain is misfiring, right? My amygdala is misfiring. So it, it really helps to understand a teeny weeny bit of science, which we go into in our book around mm-hmm. anxiety. It helps the acceptance piece, right? That is like the primary piece. And then... Um, Can I interrupt you for a second, Mary? Sure. We When we do workshops, and which we haven't been doing during the pandemic, but before yeah. the pandemic, when we would travel around and do workshops, we always had everybody sign a contract. That said, you know, I have anxiety, but this is a disorder. It's not a decision. You know, if I have anxiety, it means that I'm going to experience anxieties. Therefore, you know, in other words, we had a whole acceptance contract because that's the first step. You have to say, right. all right, this is right. part of me. Yep. You know, just like I have red hair and freckles and anxiety. This is part of that. Right. right. And then and then we sort of can move on to the idea of of agency. And that's really our Mm -hmm. idea that, 
um, you know, we can say in small and big ways, we can take charge of our anxiety and we can say, you know what? Okay. I have anxiety and, um, you can come along with me anxiety, but you can't drive. You can't decide Mm -hmm. where I'm going, but Mm -hmm. you can come along with me because you're here, you know, and I'm, and I, and I can deal with you. I can Mm -hmm. quiet you down a little bit. Um, and then we have our community, which is really about the idea that, you know, we can't do this all, all by ourselves. We all need, we need support in one way or another. Uh, you know, people need other people desperately, right? Yes. We, yes. we say a lone monkey, you know, they say a lone monkey is a dead monkey because we all mm-hmm. need connection, whether that's to another person or to our pets or to, you know, an online support community or through intimate relationships, you know, we, we need, we need a lot of different kinds of connection. For sure. And that's also, um, what has just added such a layer of difficulty to anxiety and depression during the pandemic is the separation from community. Um, and then some gratitude for technology, you know, for bringing us together. Um, and I think the research is showing, as you're saying, like connection and community are essential to, uh, mental and physical health, just essential. Yes. They're, they're essential to our physical health as well as our, yeah, to all our health in general. And in case any listeners are thinking, oh, you know, I don't really have a big circle of friends or I really spend a lot of time alone or I don't have any family. We want to reassure you that connection does not have to be so intimate. Connection can be waving to the person who delivers your Amazon package. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that is connection. Exchanging Mm -hmm. smiles with somebody as you walk by them on the street. That actually, the mirror neurons in our heads and in our bodies go to work and, and, and release serotonin and all those feel-good chemicals when we smile at another human being. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So don't, don't stop waving at people. That's such a good thing to do. Wave at everyone, smile at them. People think I'm nuts in the park, but I don't care. Yeah. Well, and even with, with there's, you know, this big debate, which we don't need to get into right now about masks and the impact of masks right. on kids. And I guess I'll, I'll just see what you guys think about this. Like the a lot of the research talks about the way we read people is through our eyes and the expression of eyes. So I've heard people saying, "Well, yeah, I don't smile as much because I have a mask on." And I say, "No, you got to keep you got to keep smiling. It's in your eyes. Like you can see a smile and a connection as you talk about the mirror neurons between how we communicate when we look at each other." Yes. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. You you can smile with your eyes a hundred percent. We do. Yeah. Um. So, Abby, I want to go back to something you just uh, had said previously. Anxiety is not a uh, anxiety is a disorder, not a decision. And this has to do with what you guys talk about with acceptance. So, I want to make sure everyone understands what you guys mean by that. So, you know what we basically say when we're. I'd like to say that I really pretty much, I don't think I passed high school physics. Like I, I, you know, and I'm not very good at chemistry, but we teach this tiny bit of neuroscience to explain what's happening in our brain when Mm -hmm. we have anxiety. Um, And we do that very specifically to show people that this isn't a choice you're making. This isn't like, oh, I don't feel like going out today, so I'm going to have an anxiety attack. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. this is something that is happening to you in the same way other illnesses happen to you. Um, And so this is not a deal because people think anxiety is a moral failing. Right. Right. We spend a good amount of time explaining to people how, you know, this is this is a disorder in the same way that if you broke your leg and you were on crutches, you know, people would rush to help you get to the elevator and no one would expect you to climb the stairs. Right. But if we have a disorder in the brain, which is much less visible, then, you know, the expectation is that we're going to just, you know, oh, just relax, chill out. You know, you'll be okay. Buck up and do it, baby. You know, right. So we really like to remind people that this is not something you chose. So, okay. So, this is splitting hairs, but I think this is important because what we're saying here is um, 
this is not a decision. This is a disorder in your mm-hmm. brain, but there's nothing wrong with you. You're a full right. human being. So right. how do we, how do we hold that? Well, because I mean, and part of that is, you know, we talk a lot about self-compassion and I think self-compassion helps us hold a lot of different pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and we mean by that really understanding that to be human, you know, to be a person means that we struggle all of us, all of us. And we, you know, and it looks like your neighbor doesn't struggle when you look at them on Facebook or wherever you're seeing them on Instagram, but we're all, we all struggle. We, that's like the, that's the thing that makes us human beings is struggle. And the two Um, things that you said, Dr. Dan, those two things are not mutually exclusive because we can define wholeness. You can, you can have a disorder and still be whole. Yeah. Right. And that's what right. we try to teach people is if you can learn to manage your disorder, then you can experience the joy of being whole. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. You can, you can have, if you have diabetes, you yes. have something, but you're still a whole human being who happens to have diabetes and has to manage it, understand it and treat it. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And and we need a lot of self-compassion for ourselves. We need a lot of saying to to ourselves, you know what? you know, this is my anxiety and it's really, really hard. It doesn't mean that I can't be able to still do things and learn, learn ways to cope, but it's there and it's hard and it's painful. Yes. Yes. And back to the more, you know, the moral, uh, judgments, I think that people make towards themselves and towards others. Like no one is saying to use the diabetes example, um, wow, you are a weak person that your body does not produce insulin. Or enough yeah. insulin, right? No, like who's thinking that? Right. But yet, when it's um, I'm afraid to speak in front of other people. I'm starting yeah. to have a panic attack. It's like, oh well, wow, you really got to suck it up. You have to suck it. Yeah, it's the whole it's the whole casserole thing that we that people say, which is like, you know, when someone you know has cancer, everyone comes around with a casserole, or uh, you know. How can I help? What can I do? But when someone is really disabled from a brain illness or a mental illness, you know, people disappear and they become afraid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So to... Um, to keep going towards wonderful complexity here, relevant yes. wonderful complexity. Um, so, you know, a premise of this, the idea of our conversation, our show is about, you know, the way to raise these healthy and engaged kids is for us parents to work on ourselves, like yes. increase our own health. Um, in this case, would be anxiety would be a piece of it. And then there's the, so there's that. And then there's the interplay when we have anxious kids. And and so let's talk about that because there's a lot to unwind with that um, very common situation. Yes. It's contagious. It is. You know, anxiety is contagious. Yes, exactly. 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 The kids give it to us. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I mean, I think part of it is, um, you know, I know I, struggle with this as a parent, but part of it is not merging the anxiety. You know, it's very easy to merge our anxiety and our children's anxiety. So when our, when our child is, is being, is showing symptoms of anxiety, it it makes us very anxious Mm -hmm. as parents. I mean, it's very anxiety provoking for us. And so that's part of the reason we talk a lot about, being able to take, take that minute, you know, either sometimes, you know, sometimes it's through breath, sometimes it's through taking a walk, sometimes it's through meditation to take that minute and sort of separate what is happening for ourselves and what's happening for our child. That's like a very key step or else we, we go into fight or flight with them. Which is not helpful for them or ourselves. Right. 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 Or them. Yeah. And another thing we really think is important, and we talked a little bit about this before, is, you know, is, is helping kids name what they're feeling, mm-hmm. giving mm-hmm. kids the vocabulary to understand what might be going on. 
mm-hmm. um, in a way that doesn't make them feel like they're wrong or bad or have done something wrong. In other words, you can teach kids very early on that, hey, it's okay to have anxiety. A lot of human beings experience anxiety about going to school or getting up in front of their peers or you know, any number of things. In other words, I, I think that if anyone had told me that when I was a kid, it just would have helped so much because I really had so much anxiety as a child and I really was sure it was because something was wrong with me. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of the compulsions that I developed in my obsessive compulsive disorder were all about sort of hiding all right. the areas where I felt like I was less than. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that, that it's really important for all kids, teenagers and even pre-adults, right? Because your brain doesn't really fully form until you're at least 25. So right. we span right. childhood right. out a bit. But we, you know, it's really important to have a way to talk about mm-hmm. what you're feeling, mm-hmm. not as something that's pathological or right. blameworthy or a, right. fa- or a failure, but as part of being human. And what can we do to stay in the driver's seat? How can we talk to ourselves so that we stay in charge and we don't let our anxiety take over. If you're talking to a three-year-old, it could be you're talking about bossy Bob, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it can be the name of the anxiety. In other words, mm-hmm. you, you adjust your conversation for the, for the age of the child. But I really think it's important for kids to be able to understand what they're feeling mm-hmm. and, have, and have a way to talk about it. Absolutely. That right. vocabulary. And Go then ahead. you can give them tools once you're both calm enough, like I, I remember several years ago, one of my kids was having a homework frustration, you know, day, mm-hmm. night. And, um, and you know, I took out the bubbles and I said, you know what? I, I hear how frustrated you are. Sometimes when I do breathing and bubbles help me do that, sometimes when I breathe in and out and bubbles help me do that, it helps calm down my system. And, and it gives us a break and we can have some fun for a few minutes and we'll go back. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a lot of techniques that you can use depending on the age of your kids just to start to show them how to regulate themselves regulate. a little bit. Right. But as you right. said, just like in an airplane, you're supposed to put the oxygen mask over your own nose and mouth first exactly. and then help your child. You mm-hmm. have to first make sure that you're in a, in a non-fight or flight place. You have to be in the yeah. sympathetic mode so you can then be helpful to your kid. And that is so key and so hard. And, so hard. Um, right. And so for everyone listening, you know, we want to help our kids. We want our kids to be happy. We don't want them to feel pain. We don't want them to struggle, especially go through some of the struggles that we might have gone through. And so there's this like, seems like biological drive that goes from, you know, sur- helping with survival, but going towards all of the emotional well being. And, key to this is that awareness of am i do i have anxiety or do i get anxious in these moments you know big a little a anxiety disorder big a or i experience anxiety of course being human and being a parent and and what does that make me do because I, i actually have a quick story about when one of our kids was was struggling and of course, when your child is struggling, you feel very powerless. And then for those of us who tend to worry about the future and ramifications, it kicks into anxiety. And here I am trying to be this mindful psychologist guy who actually specializes in anxiety, you know, like do all the right work, uh, do all the say all the right things. And I walk into this child's room in this situation and I say something and as it came out, I could not believe how I just added to the anxious situation. And this child said to me calmly, looked me straight in the eye and said, dad, of all people, I would expect you to know better than to say that. (laughs) Oh God. Yes. Yes. We had that too. Yeah. Yeah. And all I could say was, you're so right. I'm sorry. But I just like, just as an example for all the listeners, like, Oh my God. God, for all yes. of us who like do this, it's yes. still that hard in these situations when our kids are suffering. If I had a dime for every time my son looked at me and said, really, you're an anxiety sister and you just yeah. said that? Yeah. <laughs> my, my son, my older son often goes on anxiety sister. Sometimes he presses the panic button or he reads blogs. And because he's like, it's a calmer way to get the information. <laughs> Than, than me. Than talking you know? to you, right. Yeah. Yes, than talking yeah. to me. So often I walk into his room and I and I see him like listening to a podcast 
And he's yeah. like, yeah, this just helps relax me. Yeah. <laughs> and he lives with me, you know. And, and, yeah. and obviously, I mean, parenting as a venture is just about the most anxiety provoking thing you can do. Pretty much. In my opinion. I mean, other than maybe mm-hmm. like bungee jumping off some very big bridge. Yeah. <laughs> Different type of anxiety. Yes. Yeah. yes. But, yeah. but I'm saying that, I mean, the, the endeavor of parenting, there is nothing harder. Because these beings are extensions of us. So not only do we care desperately for their welfare, but we also care a lot about our own sense of who we are through these kids. I mean, that's just part of that. There's a transference there. And it just makes it really sticky. And I don't know any parents. I mean, I don't know anyone who hasn't added to the anxiety for their children by accident or unwittingly or been told by their kid, thanks, you just made it worse. (laughs) I mean, we that's human, too. So do you think do you think this is too strong of a statement for both of you guys that if you have a child who is experiencing anxiety or or any or any time of related struggle that actually the number one thing that you can do first is check yourself and your own mental health That's and not your too own strong. anxiety yeah. That is not too strong that's perfect I mean and I and I think going along with that cuz it's something that um we've seen a lot is going along with that is um, being okay with whatever emotions your child is expressing, you know, so I am not saying that every action is okay. Right. But I think a lot of times we don't want our children to express sadness or anger or fear we don't want them to cry. You know, so many times Mm -hmm. I find myself saying, Oh, don't cry. And then I catch myself. Right. We there. So I think sometimes we get confused between stuff between saying, okay, this action isn't okay. Right. Mm -hmm. If you do this thing, it's not okay. Versus letting them express a feeling, you know? And so an example I always think of from when one of my kids was really young, was he, he had to wait, you know, he had to wait online to do something and he was really crying about it. And my sister-in-law said to me, well, no, he shouldn't be able to do it till he stops crying. And I said, no, he, he's allowed to cry. He's allowed to feel however he feels. Mm-hmm. He can't skip the line. Right. But he can cry in the line, you know, and I, and I think that often as parents, we get very involved in like sort of how it appears, how our child's emotion appears in public mm-hmm. or even in private. Well, and I think what the important point you're bringing up is for us to be aware that our ability to tolerate our children's emotions and our children's pain. Yes, yes. Because life is full of different types of pain. Like it's part of the human experience. And kids need to learn to understand their emotion, their response to different kinds of pain, and then how they are ultimately resilient, work through it. And if we jump in because we can't handle them feeling bad, we are actually doing a disservice to them, even though it's a good intention. I would say that the biggest disservice I've done to all of my kids has been that when I was trying so hard to make, make them not have to suffer. Mm-hmm. And I look back, I look back on it, and I've said to them, "Yeah, that was those were mistakes on my part because you know what parent wants to see their child suffer? It's so awful, yeah. and yet it's part of being human. And right. I, think, I think what changed for me in terms of working with anxious kids because my kids are all, all have have anxiety, and I think that what helped me so much was when I really started practicing self compassion, when mm-hmm. I really started saying to myself out loud, "Wow." this is so hard. I am really struggling right now. I love this child so much and it is breaking my heart that this child is suffering, but I know that this child will come through it and she or he's going to have to experience this. And I'm going to have to watch that person experience this. And this is going to be really, really hard, but this is part of the process. This is part of parenting. This is part of making a healthy independent being. Yes. And I think I, I just said that to myself over and over. This is hard. This is really mm-hmm. hard. You're, you know, it's okay that you're upset about this. It's hard. We are moving so close to the parent footprint moment question. Um, time <laughs> is going so fast today. Um, before we get there, 
um, I want to make a comment and then ask you guys each a question. First, um, for the comment to the audience is what's wonderful about Anxiety Sisters, as you'll see when you read the book, it is a community and it is um, all gender, all everything. So mm -hmm. um, it is a community. I am a member. I am an anxiety sister. I'm a member of the tribe yes. and it's for everyone to feel inclusive, um, which is so wonderful that you guys are about community, 200,000 people in 200 plus countries. Um, my question prior to the final question for each of you, what is one thing you would offer our listeners about what you've learned from your journey as an anxiety sister? Only one thing, huh? Yeah, I'm sorry. We only have time for one. <laughs> only one. I, well, I just would say don't go it alone. That mm -hmm. we can do hard things, but we can also do hard things together, and that makes it easier. Mm -hmm. So I would say if you are experiencing, whether it be mild stress or major anxiety, wherever you are on the continuum, you know, come hang out with us. It's free. It's inclusive, as you said. Um, we are, you know, we 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 call ourselves anxiety sisters because that's our experience. But we always say the definition of an anxiety sister is anyone of any gender with any amount of anxiety. That's mm. <laughs> so. You know, mm. we have uh, people from all walks of life. Um, don't don't do it alone. It's much mm -hmm. easier when there's people holding you up. Yes, I think that. Um the thing that I've learned from from our community online most is is something you referred to before, which is there are two pieces. Being able to name what's going on is so powerful. Knowing that, oh, I have this, you know, we call it like sort of dissociation. We often call it floating. Oh, oh, I'm feeling like I'm not quite in my body. Oh, that's a thing. That's a thing that other people have. I mean, that is so freeing because so many mm -hmm. people write to us and, and tell us, like, I thought I was crazy. Um, but now I know that's part of anxiety, right? Mm -hmm. So one thing is is naming is, is so unbelievably helpful. And that's part of, you know, sharing in a community. Um, and then the second is also something you referred to sort of in that whole thing of being very mindful, being starting to really um, figure out what we're feeling and when we're feeling it, it's just incredibly helpful. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the two are connected. Wisdom, wisdom, everyone wisdom mm -hmm. for the, from the anxiety, the anxiety sisters. Yeah. <laughs> okay, guys, it's time. It's time for the okay. parent moment question. And here, here, here it is. Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual or as a parent and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your kids, and those you care about. I'm going to call on you okay. because I know you're both thinking and like, who's going to go first? Okay. So uh, I'm just looking bottom of my screen. So uh, abs, you're on the bottom of the screen here. Okay. So, wow, there's a lot of moments that have changed how I view myself. I I would say the most recent one that was a huge aha for me was um, I became a grandparent a few years ago. And I, uh, so I'm watching my children parent. And as I'm watching them parent, and of course, you're, you know, as a parent, the first thing you want to do is tell them what they need to do differently. <laughs> oh, no, don't do that. Do that. And, you know, you have that impetus to help out. And I've stopped myself. And I think the reason I stopped myself is because I, I'm understanding that there is no one right way to parent. That as long as what we want is for our children to feel safe and loved and to have mental and physical health, then there's so many ways to go about that. Mm, and that mm -hmm. my way, I mean, this is huge, like light bulb moment for me, but my way isn't necessarily the right way. I can't believe I'm admitting this. I hope my kids are not listening, but, <laughs> but there is no one way, one right way to do that. And when I came to that point, I suddenly felt so much differently, not only more forgiving of my own parenting errors, but also I'm lucky enough to have both my parents alive. And I was able to look at them differently mm -hmm. and say, wow, 
They loved me. They wanted me to be healthy and happy. And they did the best they could, just like I did the best I could. And now my children are doing the best that they can. And it was just this very, it was like a very spiritual moment for me to recognize yeah. that there is no one right way to parent, even though sometimes I decided that I did have that right way. And isn't it so freeing to realize that there are many, many ways. Um, and those of us who tend towards a little towards perfectionistic thinking, it doesn't come into our minds, right? That uh, there are multiple ways and it is so freeing. So thank you for sharing that to everyone. Listen, like there are many ways. There is not a right way. Yeah. All right, Mags. Okay. So mine is... Um... So I I have um, I have children with some some special challenges and some some different kinds of needs and um, so all parents of children with some special challenges know what it's like to deal with the bullying issue right where your child's being bullied and so I don't know this was my child maybe was in I don't know third grade or I I don't fourth grade fifth grade I don't remember but. You know, he, he came home and he was telling us that, you know, s certain things people said to him in, in school, right? You know, certain like mean sort of one-ups people said. Mm -hmm. And um, I found myself saying to him, well, you could just say this back, you know, or say this back, right? Sort of giving him lines to say back because I was, I was so upset, of course, as we were talking about the pain. Um, and he turned to me and he said, um, he said, mom, the thing is about, I don't want to say any of those things. And I said, why not? And he said, because I don't want to become like them. Mm. I want them to stop doing what they're doing, but I don't want to become one of them. <laughs> and it just was so profound, you know, as, as a parent of a special needs child, but also just as a parent of any child, I guess this idea of, um, yeah, like I, I wasn't, I, the things I was saying to him were not, were not kind, you know, I wasn't teaching him to be kind. I was teaching him to what I thought was defend himself, but he, he had it all over me. Like he understood so much more, huh. like, this is not who I want to be. This is not what I want to put out in the world. It just stopped me in my tracks, you know, because it was such a big lesson for me. Mm -hmm. Our kids teach us so much when we stop and listen. Yes. And, and as you're saying, like being able to pivot and actually knowing, I mean, here's a theme like that. We're not always right. 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 Like they actually have the answers a lot of the time. And can we yeah. allow them, can we help them along their way of finding their answer or being confident to go in the direction that they want to go in these? Yeah. I mean, I think so many times for those of us who have any kids with special needs, we want, we sort of are trying to help them be normal. And mm -hmm. then we have to really think about quote unquote normal or typical, right. Right. you know, and then we have to really think about how great normal is, mm -hmm. you know, like it's right. not. Right. Uh, no. And we were talking before the show of an earlier podcast with Jonathan yeah. Mooney and the title is uh, normal sucks. Exactly. <laughs> no, right? exactly. Normal sucks, everyone. We got to embrace our neurodiversity um, and anxiety being definitely on the neurodiverse uh, continuum. Yes, absolutely. So that that was yeah, like, thank I've you. had a lot of those moments with yeah. him, but that was a big, you know, moment that I'm thinking about right now. You also have a particularly wise child, Meg. Yes. Awesome. All right, you guys, this was a this conversation went really, really, really fast. Um, I'm holding this great book and I want to I'm going to read it again because I want everyone to hear the subtitle as well, because it's it's the inspirational part. Um, the Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide, How You Can Become More Hopeful, Connected and Happy. And um, I read this book cover to cover, page, uh, page after page. It is filled with why your brain does what it does, what anxiety is, all the different types of, of, of treatments, of help, um, both mainstream, alternative. It's in such a friendly, uh, welcoming, and community-based tone, which I know is no surprise to everyone after hearing from you. So tell everyone where they can find the book, where they can join your community, where they can find your podcast, and all the stuff you guys are doing. 
So you can find us on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. You can buy our book anywhere you buy books. We happen to love our independent bookstores, but you can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or I think Target and Walmart as well. So anywhere you want. Um, And you can find our Facebook page. It's Anxiety Sisters. Come join us. We have a robust conversation going on there 24-7. We also are on Instagram at the Anxiety Sisters. And uh, we have a podcast every month called The Spin Cycle. So you can join us there as well. And um, Dr. Dan, I really feel like you should just look at, you guys don't get to see his face, but we do. Just looking at your face is very soothing. I'm thinking you're ready for a TV show. So I'm sorry. <laughs> Thanks, Maggie. <laughs> well, we, definitely think, we definitely think you're going to have to come on our podcast to talk. Oh, we need to have more conversation here. This is I'd love enough. that. I'd, I'd welcome that. Thank you guys very Good. much. I, I mean, just preparing for this, I knew um, I'd be talking to kindred spirits for sure. Yes, and um, and uh, that definitely is true. So thank you guys so much for the work you're doing, for um, raising awareness, um, for bringing this important information and this non-stigma, non-stigmatizing, accepting um, help and hope to so many people who deal with this, um, this thing called anxiety. And so everyone, you are all now part of the Anxiety Sisters just by listening to the show. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Dan, so much. All right, everyone, that concludes another inspiring conversation. Um, You know what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to share this with anyone that you think can benefit from this conversation. Uh, Join our community. Tell others about this community of helping the world become a more loving and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. And as always, I will leave you with the guiding question, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com forward slash ads. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.